the child may be feeling frustrated, but they're calling it boredom. They may be feeling insecure and they're calling it boredom. They may be feeling that they've been doing the same thing too long. They didn't want a faster pace and they're calling it boredom. It isn't necessarily like what I think of as boredom is when boredom is when there is this mismatch between what I'm capable of doing and what I am being asked to do in a way that I had no choice over, right? You have to add that piece because if Mm -hmm. I choose to wash the dishes, if I choose to fold the laundry, I'm going to feel far less bored than if I have no choice. Hello, and welcome to NCAGT's podcast, They'll Be Fine. I am one of your hosts, Catherine Caldwell, and today you are in for a treat because joining us today is Alexia Rose. Hello, I am also an educator looking to help support gifted learners in any way that I can because time and time again, we hear they'll be fine, they're smart, they're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. Because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum services. Our nation's education policies narrowly focus on the achievement gap for struggling learners, which is extremely problematic for the widening excellence gap faced by high ability students. Most regular classroom teachers do not receive adequate training to recognize and address the needs of high ability learners. This is even more pronounced for children of color, English language learners, and children from low-income backgrounds. In addition, these teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. While this is an important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. Here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We are here because the saying they'll be fine just isn't good enough. Lisa Van Gemmert is here today to talk about boredom. Lisa Van Gemmert shares best practices in education with audiences all over the world using a combination of neuropsychology, pedagogy, experience, humor, technology, and sheer fun. She is an expert consult to television shows, including Lifetime's Child Genius. She's a writer of award-winning lesson plans, as well as numerous published articles on social psychology and pedagogy. She's also written four books, including the legacy award-winning book, Perfectionism, A Practical Guide to Managing Never Good Enough. As a former teacher, school administrator, and youth and education ambassador for Mensa, she shares resources for educators and parents on her websites, giftedguru.com and vocabularyluau.com. On today's episode, we will explore all that is boredom. We will talk about what it is, how to avoid it, and how to overcome it. We hope you enjoy. We saw that you are an expert consultant on the television show Child Genius. Um, That's so cool. I thought that was such an interesting experience. What did that look like? How was that? 
it was a very interesting experience and it's still an interesting experience because they recently put all the episodes on their YouTube channel. And so people who had not seen it before have been seeing it. And so now I'm getting more of what I got when it originally aired, which is sometimes people recognize me from it. And it's interesting because the show was on Lifetime and I think it caught more traction than it otherwise would because it followed dance moms. And so people who were watching dance mom just stayed around and saw some of the things that people might not know about filming a show like that. And especially serving as an expert consultant is that I showed up and they filmed me in the first couple of episodes of the season. And so I had no idea what was going to happen. I had not seen it yet, obviously, because it hadn't yet occurred and it's not a time machine. And so they would just say to me, oh, we're going to be doing this. What might happen? And they would record my commentary. And so I recorded hours and hours of commentary just from my personal experience. And obviously it's what I do and expertise working with gifted children, predicting what would happen in the dynamic with gifted kids and their parents. And then later on, as they film the show, the editors would put in clips from that commentary. And so I would sometimes get, oh, I got a hate phone call from one set of parents about something I had said. And it was funny because I was able to say to the person, I wasn't even talking about you. I didn't even know that, that I had no way of knowing that was where they were going to put in the clip. So this is truly a matter of if the shoe fits, because mm -hmm. I was not talking about you. I was talking about yeah. a scenario like this, and it just happened to be that you acted that way. And so they chose that. And that that was the part where I said, we're going to see people who aren't helicopter parents, they're hovercraft, right? And so mm -hmm. I can't believe you called me a hovercraft parent. I'm like, it just so <laughs> happened. But the, the fun part of the show was, primarily the most fun part was obviously meeting the kids, but working with Leland Melvin, who's an astronaut and working with Timothy Gunn, not the Tim Gunn who's project runway, but the one who's a psychologist specializing in gifted. And they were so interesting, obviously Leland as a grown up gifted kid. And then Tim with his expertise in it. And the three of us had, such a blast and we still keep in touch. So that was fun. It was interesting to watch the psychological dynamic of seeing the kids under pressure and how differently they handled it. And one of the things that really concerns me about gifted kids now is that too many parents, in my opinion, too many parents, as soon as a kid says that something makes them nervous, the first reaction of the parent is to get them out of it mm -hmm. rather than letting them feel nervous, letting them experience that nervousness and move toward it, right? They were in a safe space, safe-ish, right? Like, I mean, they did have the possibility of people on TV giving them a hard time about it. But these kids were at the age, most of them, where the parents could protect them from that. Like the parents didn't have to let them see what people were saying. And they had chosen to, to put themselves in this situation. But in the moment, while it's being recorded, you know, in the in this on the studio, on the set, nobody's mean to them. 
nobody is going to say anything to them right there. And so there's there was a big opportunity for kids to develop their ability to manage stuff. And we saw kids have total meltdowns. I have a feeling they act that way at home too. So it wasn't something just at the mm-hmm. studio. So somebody asked me recently, if you could attribute the rise in the basically self-diagnosis of anxiety, what would you attribute it to? And I feel, because I feel like anxiety has replaced ADHD as like the diagnosis of choice and particularly the self-diagnosis and parent diagnosis of choice, as opposed to a certified mental health professional, a licensed mental health professional giving an actual diagnosis. And the answer I give, and this is from the perspective of a third grade teacher, is the death of the spelling bee. That we no longer have as many opportunities for kids to feel nervous and learn that it's okay to feel nervous and stay in that nervousness for a while. And we don't let kids do that anymore. And I feel like it's one of the biggest problems that we have at home and at school and in other circumstances as well. But if I could give a piece of advice to parents and teachers, it's not going to be that sophisticated advice. It's, It's going to be let kids be a little uncomfortable and let teachers be a little uncomfortable, be okay with a little discomfort and live in it. What a good skill. Cause I feel like we don't do that very often mm-hmm. and we don't like to put ourselves in those positions. And I'm just thinking about my own kids at school. I quickly am aware that this is a high stakes situation. This feels, oh, you could be embarrassed in this situation. And that you're exactly right. I feel like we want to shield them from that public humiliation or I don't know, whatever we're scared of that's going to happen. That's so true. I was just thinking about this show, how that's so fascinating that you would make these like predictions of what you thought was going to happen. And I can only imagine how cool that was to like see it actually play out and how, I don't know how easily people can be predicted, like how they're going to act in certain situations. Yeah. The adults and the kids. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's, it was fun for me to watch it later because like it would come out months later and the episodes would come out. And sometimes it was very disjointed. And you can see that if you watch closely in the episodes, you'll see that I'm wearing different clothes, like in the same episode, (laughs) different clothes because I film different days and I've got, but they're splicing it in. And it's true. And partly that's because there are identifiable gifted characteristics. And if people work with gifted kids for long periods of time, you get some expertise in those behaviors. And at the time of the filming of the show, I was the youth and education ambassador for Mensa. So I was working with thousands of really profoundly gifted children on a daily basis. Lisa, what brought you into the world of education? So education in general, I think, came to me very early. I used to play school. When I was younger, I'd play school with my stuffed animals. I would line them all up. I had a little like play table and I would set them at little chairs all around and I would give them assignments and I would give them homework and they would, you know, um, and school supplies have always been my favorite thing. I I joke a lot about how I became a teacher because I like school supplies, but it's not even a joke. Like I... I have favorite pens. I love, I grew to love other people's children, but seriously, I started because they're Sharpies. And then I would say also, even when I was a babysitter, like when I was, I can remember being 12, 13 years old and babysitting, and I would make the kids I was babysitting play school. I don't know. I I think we let people babysit younger when I was growing up than we do now. I'd never leave a 12 year old with my little kids now, but it was a thing that, of course, I made a dollar an hour, no matter how many kids 
kids and I would clean the house and put them to bed and make dinner and everything. And babysitting has changed a lot. Now they charge a billion dollars an hour and you're just lucky your house is standing when you get home. And for the most part, I'm sure there are fabulous babysitters still today. But I think I was a natural teacher and I feel like a lot of people are like that. They're drawn to education. It's almost a calling, like like being a doctor or a religious um, leader of some kind, and that they feel drawn to it. And a lot of times, even when teachers do something else, they're still in a service aspect, right? Teachers, I have a friend who left teaching, became a nurse, right? So it's like, you can't get away from, from mm-hmm. it. It's just in there. And for me, I teach kids no matter where I am. Even now, my husband will caution me. You're not their teacher. He's Australian. So he says it cool, but he's like, you know, remember you're not their teacher. So, but I'm like, oh, I kind of am. Like I, I kind of will teach anybody. We've gone on vacation and there'll be parents with little kids. And I'll say something like, if you start to miss school, just, you know, I'm here for you. Like I'll, I'll teach you something or, if I'm working with a group of teachers and I see a kid walk by, I'll be like, come on in little boy, let me teach you something. You know, I just have this need to constantly teach. And I even teach Sunday school at church. So I just can't stop teaching. So it it came naturally into education. And I think I share that with a lot of people. My friend's daughter got a, a hall pass for her for Christmas when she was 10. And I'm here for that totally. So I feel like um, we switch into that teacher mode so quickly too, like that teacher voice as well. Like I have a lot of nieces and nephews and there's been so many times where like we were doing 4th of July, like 4th of July is a big deal in this family. And we were doing like games outside with all the kids and they were just running around crazy and chaotic. And I'm like, Listen. we just got it together like real quick. And I was like, sit down, you can hear me raise your hand or I don't know all these funny teacher things, but it's just so funny how it all like like snaps on real quick. (laughs) Oh yeah. I can't go to the movies anymore because if someone gets out a cell phone, I got the snap and point at the ready. Hey, cut it out. Put that away. For sure. So it sounds like you have a lot, your hands in a lot of different places and doing a lot of things, Lisa, what does your typical like day look like? So I have a few different iterations of my typical day, depending on whether I am Um, in what I would call a content creation mode versus a training mode versus a recording mode. So I will, um, I mainly do speaking and writing as what I do now. And although I do still work with students, so I will, on a writing day, I will, I use a Kanban board. So if people are familiar with those, they track like what needs to be done what you are currently working on, and then what has been completed. And typically the night before I will put into my app, I use an app called Todoist. It has a web platform as well as like a an app for your device, but mobile device. But I'll look at what needs to be done and I'll put that in Todoist to be done the next day. And then when I'm writing, I try to break down the task into the smallest behavior that matters. So I have like post-it notes. Actually, here's one in front of me where I write down like what I need to do. And I put those post-its down and be like, write 500 words in this book or write, create for this curriculum. Right now I'm working on a depth of complexity curriculum piece. And so it'll say 13 pages of it or something like that. And I will just sit down and and write. I use a standing desk and it shifts from standing to sitting. And um, I set timers on my device to tell me every 50 minutes or so to get up and move around. 
and I'll just keep writing. I very much get in a zone when I'm writing. I can, yeah, I sometimes will sit there and think to myself, I really need to use bathroom. I really need to get a drink. And three hours later, I still need to really use bathroom. I still get a drink. So I can get very focused sometimes and all the time, actually writing involves research. So a lot of my writing days don't look very righty. They look very researchy. Um, when I wrote my book on perfectionism, I read every peer-reviewed journal article I could find on perfectionism, hundreds of them. And so I would just sit. So if I'm actually typing writing, I'm at my desk, but I sometimes will go sit on a couch or even sit outside to read. And I often will also listen to audiobooks as well that I'm I'm doing for research. And then when I'm when I am training like training other teachers in person, then that can involve flying, rental cars, all of that transportation part of it, Um, hold up in a hotel, I'll get into the city, drive to the hotel, and then just sit down in the hotel and start writing. And I don't have cable TV or anything. So I'll binge watch HDTV while I work in the hotel. And then obviously just training teachers, just standing in front of them and and talking and that I just love meeting teachers face to face. I missed that very much during COVID. And then I also do online, sometimes live streaming. Once a month, I hold office hours on YouTube and Facebook that I live stream so people can join in and and ask questions or they submit questions ahead of time. I um, have done teaching classes like kids. Teachers, if they want to watch me teach right now, they can go watch on YouTube where all the recordings of the live streams I did for students during COVID are there. And that was probably one of, I would say professionally, the most rewarding thing I have ever done professionally was that, was that English class during COVID. I don't think anything will ever match it for just the emotion that it had and still has. And I'm still in touch with students who came to that class. And that was just an astonishing thing. We had hundreds and hundreds of students participating from all over the world. And I've had a a few of those students actually come to my house and want to meet me in person. That's fun. When I'm training, I'm using, sometimes I'm live streaming and sometimes I'm recording. And that's been a real challenge for me because that doesn't come naturally to me. I'm not like particularly techie. My husband is a software engineer. I married the IT department because I'm not good at it. And so that's been something I've really had to learn. But my days, those are really my three basic day formations. I'm either recording, live streaming, training in person, or or writing or preparing to write. I will say that besides working with teachers, working with kids is a favorite. So there are different places I go where they pull me in to work with kids, typically at schools for the highly gifted um, or magnet type programs. And usually I'm not teaching particular content, although sometimes I do that. Mostly what I'm working on are social emotional skills, right? How to get along in groups with other kids and things like that. And we all know how important that is for those gifted kiddos to have that. So I think that is so special that they get to have you. It's fun. It's one of my favorite things. When you attempt to explain your life's work to someone that maybe isn't living and breathing in this world of gifted education, what do you tell them or how do you explain to them what it means to be labeled as gifted? 
I obviously have an elevator speech that's really short. I just had to use it today at the doctor's office when they asked me what I did. And I said, I'm, I work in education. I sometimes will say I'm a teacher's assistant um, because it, that everybody knows what that means. But I will say that I help teachers teach kids who are so smart that they have a hard time just being in a regular classroom and their teacher needs some special skills to make sure that they can learn. The end. That's what I say. Now, if they ask okay. me more questions, I will get into it more deeply and I will add things like, you know how a lot of students struggle because they have learning difficulties. Having an ability far above what other kids your age have is its own kind of difficulty. And so if you and depending on the level of education of the person I'm talking to, if they understand the idea that there's like an IQ spectrum, I'll say I focus on kids who struggle because they're too far the other way, right? Like they, we have federal law that protects kids who have learning differences or whose IQ is really far to the left. I focus on making sure we don't leave the kids whose IQ is super far to the right in the, in the dust. Most people are very surprised to find out that there is no protection under the law for gifted students. Most people are very surprised about that. If there is, it's at the state level. Mm -hmm. And even okay. then I find that even the states that do technically require identification and service of gifted children and require that teachers be trained, I still find that every, like when I go to those states, there are always districts that can go under the radar. That's no guarantee. There's mm -hmm. no... I have yet to see, I, I'm sure this has happened. If someone knows of this and can let me know the details of it, I would love it. But I've yet to see an OCR complaint because of a lack of service of gifted. OCR is the Office of Civil Rights and you can file a complaint if you feel a health provider or government agency has discriminated against you or someone else unlawfully. But you see it every single day because of mm -hmm. students from the special education sphere that's not gifted. I think it just goes to what we talk about, like this huge issue of just people not think they're thinking that these kids will be fine. They're thinking that they don't need the same services or aren't entitled to the same services that a student would need who, like you said, is in the, on the left side of the spectrum. I think that's such a, a good visual to think about and to explain to someone that these students over here need what they have a need, just like these kids over here have a need as well. It's just different. I describe it like if school is a tortilla and you fold it up in the middle and make like a taco, right? School's made for all the stuff in the middle, the meat, the cheese, like all that's there. And the kids who are up at the top rim of the tortilla of the taco, they're, it's, they're just out there. They're just there. It's not there for them. And whatever side they're on, they need assistance. But you know, the, the basic the basic reason that people do not believe in the identification and service of the gifted and the need for it is because of a fundamental lack of understanding of what school success entails. Most people, even people in gifted ed sometimes believe that what it takes to succeed in school is high intelligence. Isn't that what school's about? Learning? What's learning about being smart? Well, but that's not true. Like what it takes for student success in school is a small a bit, a small bit of ability, but it also takes executive function skills and it also takes social emotional strength and skills and development. 
And gifted kids don't necessarily have high executive function. In fact, people are probably laughing just to hear me say that sentence, don't necessarily have high executive function. I think most people who deal with gifted kids a lot would say due to asynchronous development, they're often going to have executive function struggles. And then they're definitely not necessarily going to have social emotional strength above their grade level, right? And so I think we have a misperception about what it takes to succeed in school. And that misperception is the heart and soul of why we don't believe in serving gifted kids. It's our own ignorance. Do you have an academically talented child who's looking for a challenging and exciting summer program? Summer Institute for the Gifted provides innovative academic programs for exceptional students from all over the world. Enroll now at some of the top universities in the country, including UNC Chapel Hill, for courses like robotics, creative writing, and neuroscience. These courses are designed to engage and inspire your child, allowing them to grow into the next best version of themselves. To learn more and enroll, visit our website at giftedstudy.org. So today's episode is focused on this idea of boredom. And I remember when I heard that was going to be your topic of discussion at the conference. And I was like, what? That's such wow. We're going to have a topic, like a whole session on boredom. What is that? I have to go and listen to that. And I just remember being so sucked in the whole entire time you were talking. I had so many notes on boredom and I just came home with telling my husband all about it. So it's like, did you know this about boredom? You never knew this. It was just so cool. So I'm so excited. We're getting to talk about that today. Boredom and gifted learners, but also really in people in general. I found this definition from the Davidson Institute. It said, boredom is what happens when perceived skills or the perceived payoff for doing the task are not well matched to the perceived difficulty or the perceived necessary effort. Would you agree with that definition or would you maybe like add on a little bit to it? Yeah, I think that's a vast oversimplification and it's not what we always see with gifted. So um, yes, if if you have a task that's way below your ability, you're going to get like you're more prone to get bored. However, that isn't necessarily always the case. I don't sit there folding laundry thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm so bored. I don't wash dishes thinking oh, I'm so bored. And all of that is stuff that's obviously below my ability. I'm not developing my skill at folding laundry. I can fold a fitted sheet well enough that you can't tell it's a fitted sheet, right? My skills of laundry are pretty good. (laughs) I'm not, it's not like I have a mismatch of skill, but I don't sit there bored. Last night I was out pulling weeds in a couple of flower beds in my house and I'm sitting there bored, right? So lots of people do things for enjoyment that are below their skill level. I play Barbies with my granddaughters. I'm not sitting there bored, right? So that definition addresses one issue. If we have students who are consistently provided opportunities for work that are below their ability or that the reward for, I don't even like the word reward because I'm an anti-behaviorist, I would say, but if it's if they're consistently being asked to do stuff below their ability, for tasks that they believe should be challenging, then they are going to be more prone to boredom. But I will say that even having been, so I've taught elementary school and I've taught high school. High school students, 11th, 12th grade students will happily color a picture. 
That's below their ability, but they are not complaining about being bored. So we can't just say that. So that's why I say that that definition that Davidson is using is is very, very limited. Um, what I, And I also feel like it ignores that a lot of people use the term boredom when really it's a cloak word. And what I mean by that is it's covering other feelings, but we don't know the word for that. So we use boredom. Boredom is a trigger word. When a when somebody wants a reaction from a teacher, there's probably no word someone could use to get more of a reaction than boredom. You know, my kid is bored in your class. That's going to send a teacher a DEFCON one, right? So when, an, and when a kid wants their parents' attention and, or wants to deflect attention away from their own, I was going to say malevolence, but that might be too strong, their own misbehavior. One of the best ways for them to do it is to tell their parent they're bored. Because they know that's going to get the parents' attention. And, and so we get boredom used to just, I'm going to say boredom when what I really mean is tired, disinterested, whatever. There's so many words, frustrated. I don't understand it, but I can't say I don't understand it because I'm gifted and I have to understand everything. So I just say a bored as a get out of work free card. And so I think boredom is an overused word. And I think that it's also misused as a weapon almost. And so I wouldn't agree that's a complete definition. And, and maybe Davidson wouldn't either. Maybe they're using it specifically for this particular idea of what are some of the things that cause boredom in students in school? One of those things is when there's a mismatch. And that's just basic game theory. That's just basic game theory that you want the player to be matched, that you want the player's skill to be matched to the challenge of the game. So you touched on this a little bit, but you mentioned about how kids will tell their parents that they're bored so that their teacher has, like then parent, the parents tell the teachers that they're bored. And it's just this whole kind of swirl of I'm bored. I feel like so many educators including myself, have heard from a parent, like, my kid is bored in class. So mm -hmm. what advice would you give, one, to parents when their kid says that to them? And then what advice would you give to teachers to help the, te the parent understand? Okay. First of all, the, I'll, I'll start with parents. If your child says to you, I'm bored, first of all, you want to narrow it way down. No classroom is doing, no classroom on the planet practically. Well, let me narrow it down. Very few classrooms in the United States where I have taught and teach, very few classrooms do the same thing all class period every day. That's just not a thing. We don't do the same thing all day. So if a student says, I'm bored in Miss Amenis' class, then we got to narrow that down. So the parent needs to ask some questions. What kinds of activities are you doing what things is a teacher doing when you're feeling this boredom? Are you feeling bored during direct instruction? Are you feeling bored doing during group work? Are you feeling bored boredom when you do this? And we also have to ask, what does boredom mean to you? What do you mean you feel bored? Because we assume that we understand what boredom is, but a child may have a much narrower box of feeling crayons. Do you know what I mean? Like you have that original box of eight crayons and that's what kids have emotionally. They have bored, happy, sad, mad, whatever. They got a few more, right? Adults, we have a big, the 96 box with a sharpener. We know lots of words for feelings. And so we want to make sure that we're asking enough questions to get it. 
the child may be feeling frustrated, but they're calling it boredom. They may be feeling insecure and they're calling it boredom. They may be feeling that they've been doing the same thing too long. They didn't want a faster pace and they're calling it boredom. It isn't necessarily like what I think of as boredom is when boredom is when there is this mismatch between what I'm capable of doing and what I am being asked to do in a way that I had no choice over, right? You have to add that piece because if Mm -hmm. I choose to wash the dishes, if I choose to fold the laundry, I'm going to feel far less bored than if I have no choice. Now, at the same time, there are people who have jobs that are very repetitive. My grandmother worked in a GE factory where she made televisions, very repetitive, like on a factory line. And she loved it, even though she was capable more eventually start her own business owning a hair salon. But she says that when she was working on the line in the GE factory, that she could think she had freedom to think because it didn't take her mental power, right? And she could chat with other coworkers and stuff. And the repetition itself was advantageous to her. Other people would find that it would drive them crazy. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with ability. So you want, as a parent, you have to ask more questions. You have to ask more questions. What's going on? Because if a parent will be much more successful in going to a teacher and saying, blah, 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 start with a few nice things. I saw this thing that so-and-so came home with and it was so cute. That was a fun assignment. I'm so glad that I got to see it. Okay. Then say, my child has said, that she's feeling bored. And when I ask some more questions about that, because I know your class isn't boring. When I asked some more questions about it, what I found was that she feels like a lot of students, that you are definitely meeting the needs of students who need the directions repeated a couple of times in order to really get it. But she feels ready to work after the first time, or maybe even capable of reading the directions herself and getting started. And I'm wondering if there's a way that, one that you could give her like a hand signal or something once and then let her go. Is that, do you see any way that we can make something like that work? Right. So we want to ask enough questions, get specific enough that we can have a specific request of the teacher. Bringing uh, the statement, my kid is bored in your class to the teacher is not a great way. It's not an opening line in a good conversation. It's a volley in a war. So you don't want to do that. You want to ask you want to ask your student enough questions to be able to ask the teacher a specific intervention. My and the other thing I would say is your you have to be honest about is your child is your child using boredom as a way to get out of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so we had to ask some questions like what are you doing, right? Like what are you doing? Because it's always interesting to me. It's rarely the top students in the class who complain of boredom. And it's often the students who are struggling, but don't want to admit they're struggling. It's a way to divert attention away from that, which I I believe I've already mentioned. Now for teachers, first of all, I think it's important to try to board and proof your class. Like you, the best defense is a good offense here, right? So we want to make sure we're board improving the class. Think in advance, think proactively. Where are the opportunities for boredom in the class? Are we have do we have a very wide swath of ability in the class? And we have kids who need the directions four times. Can we give hand signals that say, look, if you've already got it, go ahead and get started? Do we have so that's going to be very much tied to pacing? And are we good at pacing? Are we using tiering and compacting to make sure that the content is appropriate? Are we handling lag time and transitions appropriately? Are we doing direct instruction 
in a way that doesn't feel samey? Do we have processes in place where kids can work at speed? And so you think about how many of us like to listen to podcasts at 1.25, right? And we have to think, our gifted kids often want to have school at 1.25. Is there a way that we can give, like think about in our own classroom, is there a way I can provide this at 1.25? A few things that was making me think of was how important it is to have clear communication and just understanding for the other party. Because I was just thinking like parents and the kid and the teacher for everybody. I mean, the goal, obviously we don't want kids sitting there bored and kids not learning and growing and getting what they need. But I feel like everybody has to be listening to the other party. And I'm just thinking about people that I work with and people that I know, like when they hear that word boredom or on my kids bored, I feel like people just put up their walls. Like they don't want to hear that. Like I work so hard to make my classroom fun and make my lessons fun and engaging. And I just, I can hear that already from people. Like when they hear someone say that to them. So I just think it's so important to just drop that pride. And I love the idea of asking and really narrowing down, like what really is that child feeling? Cause you're so I just, I think about when I ask my kids sometimes, because I teach third graders and they'll want to use those words like happy and sad. And like those, like you said, with the little crayon box, I love that example. Cause I think getting down to the nitty gritty of really what's going on is can help everybody understand really what's going on in the situation. One of the most valuable resources I got for myself as a teacher was a thesaurus of feeling words. Mm. That's a good idea. It's an actual book. That's cool. <laughs> and as a teacher, as you were sharing like that potential email, and I was like, you know what? I'd be like gearing up to help solve this problem with that parent. Like thinking about it, if I truly receive that, I'm like, okay, let's go. What hand signal do you want to do, little Sarah? Like I've got you. And so <laughs> I think it's just me sitting here. I'm like that. Great advice. <laughs> yeah, as a teacher myself, what I used was just this little phrase. And I would, what I did was I do the, give the instruction one time and say, get it, got it, go. And that was a signal to everybody who's like, okay, I've got it, I can go. And then I would say, need it, stay. And so then I would go over it more slowly or say, what questions do you have about it for everybody who need another? And there was no stigma to it. And I think that's one of the problems is that a lot of teachers feel like they don't want to have the gifted kids be like, they see giftedness as elitist. And so if they have it any different for the high ability kids, then somehow that's unfair. Not realizing that the greatest unfairness of all is to act like everybody needs exactly the same thing, right? And so that's problematic. And what we want to do as teachers is understand that we we have this very wide array of ability in the class and there's no moral quality to this. Like it isn't a moral success or failure to be gifted or to be a typical learner. There's no morality associated with it. And because there's no morality associated with it, there should be no stigma to it either. Another thing to, that came to mind is this year, um, the county that I work for, we have a new reading curriculum that we're using. And I think, I, and I've heard around the state, other people are using it too, but 
it can be a little bit long-winded, like the lessons like can be longer and it's a lot of, sometimes it just feels like I'm just talking and that's, it feels like that would be a perfect opportunity for someone to perhaps get bored. What would be your advice for people who feel like they have to teach this? This is what's been given to me. And I definitely feel like sometimes I'm up there being an entertainer as much as I can, but you've been given this and this is what you have to, to use to teach. I have three pieces of advice. First, if you're in a district that makes you use a canned curriculum, consider moving. The second and less um, maybe facetious would be if, if it's possible to allow the gifted student to read it on their own. Um, do that. We can read much faster than we can listen. And so if you have texts that you as a teacher are supposed to give as direct instruction, you can do one of two things. If it works to actually just let them read it, let them read it and go on. But if that doesn't work because they need to be in discussion, like you're pausing and asking questions and leading a discussion about it, then consider compacting that by identifying which of the questions they need to participate in and which they don't, and then letting them work on their own and gathering them back for that discussion. So I would frequently have like give out a list of the questions that I want to discuss altogether and then say, have a signal that I would use to say to the kids, all right, all hands on deck. And then that's the cue to my students to come back all together. So even if you've been working independently, now that now you're going to gather back with us and have this discussion. So if I'm having a 15 minute direct instruction and then some discussion, I may have 10 of those minutes where the kids are able to work independently and then five of those minutes where they've gathered back in together. So that's one thing I would do. Another thing I would suggest is just making sure that you break it up just because it has to be done because it's prescriptive. That doesn't mean that the prescription requires that you do it all at the same time. So we have to be very cognizant of breaking up the kinds of things that we're having them do. So do, do no more than like 10 minutes or so of that without breaking up into something else. And we all have so many things that we're trying to do that we can definitely throw in a one, one to two minute little secondary thing that we're doing. And a lot of us front load or end load little tasks that need to be done in class. But I think one of the things that we can do in the case that you're describing is to insert those things in the middle, like in the middle of a, let's say you have a 20 minute or 25 minute direct instruction thing that you're being required to do, which I have to tell you that I'm getting weird feeling in, on my back, even just saying that out loud, because it just creeps me out so bad. But let's say you're required to do this thing in this 20, 25 minutes, you know, it's really too long, then break it up with something as simple as passing out graded work, right? Like, as, as you know, taking those breaks to do different things and especially not just breaks where they're dancing, which I like those too, but breaks where they get to think something differently. Even if it's something like, okay, we're, even if it's something that's administrative, don't hesitate to break it up. Also one thing, if you have time, I know nobody does, but let's say you're the one teacher on the planet who has time. If you can record the direct, like when you're doing your lesson plan, you're looking it over, just use a, a simple one. There's so many free ones. Screencastify, there's Screencast-O-Matic, there's Loom, where you can record. And so record it 
what you need to do. It's good practice anyway. I think this is something, let me go off on tangent here for just one second, which is I think that too many teachers who have curriculum provided for them do not practice it. They've got it in front of them and they just read it to the kids and that will bore your mom. Even your mom will not be able to stay interested in that. So I think it's important to practice a little bit. So as you're practicing, what you can do is just record it, provide that recording to your high ability kids and seriously let them play it at 1.25, 1.5. So they're getting the required instruction, but they're you're, that's a form of compacting. Well, and I feel like it's also a very big red flag if I'm sitting here bored and delivering the instruction, like obviously then the children will be bored. I feel like that's red flag right there. Agreed. So something I've heard you discuss is this comparing and, and discussing distraction versus boredom. What's the difference between those two? Yeah, it's fascinating. So they've done studies on this and they show that like people will report as boredom what is really distraction. And a lot of times in school, we have low level distraction all the time. We've got buzzing fluorescent lights. We've got people walking by in the hall. We've got them mowing outside our window during instruction. That's a beauty. We've got all this distraction all the time that them coming over the intercom, asking for stuff, our phone ringing. Some of this teachers don't have control over. But what shocks me is how many teachers basically open the classroom door wide, metaphorically to distraction. They've got notifications dinging on their phones. There is no one who needs to have that in class. No one. And some people say, oh, I have this circumstance or that circumstance. The fact is that if there is an emergency, the people about uh, the people who would have an emergency that you would need to know about know where you work and they can call the school. And if there really is an emergency, they can come down to your classroom and tell you, ask me mm-hmm. how I know, right? Like many of us who've been teaching a long time taught before there were cell phones and before we had. So I would strongly suggest that teachers lower distraction as much as possible because We know this. You can reproduce a boredom experiment and distraction experiment right now because you've got a permanent distraction device in the form of your phone. And even when you're on the computer, all these other things you can open up, you're you're working, you can't really get into it. So you go look on social. Oh, I'm just going to check. So I'm just going to check the news. I'm just going to check. I'm just going to check. And then you feel like you're bored. But you're not really bored. You're just distracted. Because what happens is that while you're in intense work, the, this is Chick sent me high's work on flow, right? You get into flow and you feel like the time goes by so fast. You feel like you're just really into what you're doing. When you allow distraction to creep in, you prevent yourself from getting into flow. And when you're not in flow, you don't get that enjoyment. You have lower levels of dopamine. You're not enjoying as much. You feel bored and you feel bored because you allowed yourself to be distracted. And so you check Facebook and then that makes you feel like you're bored. And it's not necessarily boredom as much as it is a lack of full engagement. And it's a lack of mindfulness. It's a lack of presence. It's a lack of being fully involved in what you're doing and allowing yourself to get distracted by stuff. And I constantly have to guard against this. This happens to me all the time, especially in writing days. When I'm super focused or I'm reading stuff, it's hard. Focus is a practice. Focus is a practice. And I've had to come up with a technique where if something comes into my mind, like, oh, I really need to do this. Then a lot of times I'll think that and I go to go I like 
oh, I better go do this. I go do it right away. And what I've had to do is create a, a list of what I thought of while I was doing something else. And I just open that list up, add the thing and go right back to what I was doing. Because if I don't get it recorded somewhere, then I'm distracted by the phonological loop in my head of, oh, I got to remember to do this. I got to remember to do this. And sometimes it's related to my work. And sometimes it's related to, oh, I really got to remember to wash those towels or whatever. I really, we don't have any milk. Having acknowledging that staying on mental task is challenging and that distraction reads like boredom and that we have to guard against it is the first step, right? And then coming up with solutions and practices that will help you stay in the moment. And that could be having a place to record what comes up in your mind. Even if it's voice recording, you could do it on a voice recorder on your phone. Even if it's saying, okay, I know that I have trouble with this focus. So I'm going to set timers where I'm going to work for someone to see if I can work for five minutes with complete focus and then expanding that. There's lots of people talking about how our attention spans have decreased, but that's not evolutionary. Like it's too fast to be evolutionary. The human brain doesn't iterate that fast. We've trained ourselves into it and we can train ourselves back out. That's a really great point. We've trained ourselves into it and we can train ourselves back out. So this was um, an idea that I got from a book called um, mindless eating or is it mindful eating? Anyway, mindful or mindless eating as Rena was a researcher who studies like how much more we eat when we don't think about it. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing for me because I always read while I eat. If I'm eating alone, I always read while I eat. And I realize that like, I want to keep reading. And so I'll just go get more food to justify sitting there eating. And I don't really want the food. I just want the book. But instead of moving to another room and keep reading, I just keep eating. Uh, I don't know if anybody else does that, but if you do, comrade. And so in and what he found was that like even putting candy in a in an opaque jar versus a clear jar, people ate less if they moved the candy across the room. And so when I read that, I thought you could apply that same thing to other things besides food, right? So what I did was I at first I put the apps for the social media that and I use it for work a lot, but I put them in a folder on my phone. So instead of seeing the Instagram app or the Facebook app, what is just this folder and I can't see that app sign as clearly. And that was very helpful, but eventually it wasn't enough. And so I took it off and I had to go look through my apps to find that app. And just that extra step, put a little friction between yourself and the distractor, put a little friction there make it just a little bit harder to access. And you will find that it becomes easier. If it's right front and center, if you have Instagram on your home screen, friend, you are not even trying, right? (laughs) So you need to do some things like that. And if you find that you can't do it without it, you can, there are apps you can install that will lock it for certain hours or lock it like for the next 30 minutes or something like that. And so there are lots of things that you could do to help yourself avoid that distraction. But first you have to be really honest with yourself about that. And one thing that parents have to do to be really honest about their children and complaints of boredom is what are the habits that they've got their kid in that lead to more boredom? Like, are they allowing their kids unfettered access to video games, which is just a nonstop dopamine overload that's going to make them feel bored other places where there's not as much dopamine available. No parent has the right to complain to a teacher that their child is bored if that parent is allowing their kid to play a lot of video games. It's just unfair 
And it's like, oh, okay, well, you don't want to hear him say they're bored at home. And so you let him just play like you're afraid of the word boredom yourself. You like too many parents think that they are the cruise director instead of the parent. Like I'm responsible. It, you know, many of us, my age, you guys are both very young, but many of us, my age, if we had gone and told our parents that we were bored, we would be given chores. I I grew up at a time where kids got sent outside when the last bell rang at the end of the school year and they weren't let back in until fall. And that's a little bit of oversight, right? We were allowed to come in for dinner, but it was true. Like come in, many people have, you have to come in when the streetlights come on or come in like mom will come out or dad will come out and call the kids, right? Or grandma or whatever the family situation is. Now we have kids who are like, I'm bored. And they use boredom as a weapon against the parents during the summer. So understand if your kid is complaining about boredom during the summer and then they go and you feel intimidated by that, threatened by that, you feel stressed by that, understand that same kid coming and complaining to you about being bored during the school year is just still using a weapon that worked on you. The main reason they're using it in school. Now, are there classrooms that are boring? boring? Yes. Are there teachers that are boring? Yes. My 11th grade AP US history teacher was so boring. I thought I would die. I've had my husband at my high school reunion one year. I had my husband take my picture in front of that classroom because it was like the place I'd been most bored in my whole life. And I know exactly what it was that made it boring. She did the exact same thing every day. She stood up behind a podium and lectured us from the first bell to the last bell every day. That was all we ever did. And she spoke in a monotone and it was terrible. And she took something that was fascinating, interesting and something that's still an interest of mine. And she made it something I hated. I dreaded her class. And so I'm not saying that there are no teachers who are boring. In fact, I would say every teacher is boring at some time. They're not doing it intentionally. And I think there's a small percentage of teachers who are just boring all the time. And it's because they don't care or they don't know better, but they don't know better because they don't care enough to know better. So there's that. But I would say as parents, one of the first things you can do to prevent your child from complaining about boredom, boredom all the time, but more than that, the way that you can prevent your child from being bored all the time is to make sure that they are getting a lot of gross motor exercise, that you make sure that they're getting time spent outside, that you make sure that they have adequate and healthy nutrition, that you make sure that they're getting enough sleep. Tiredness looks like boredom. A lot of times we feel bored when really what we are is tired and we can't maintain focus because of tiredness. Another thing we need to be making sure we're doing as parents is not constantly acting like Julie on the love boat, where I'm responsible for making sure that you have something to do all the time. And so what happens is kids will wear parents down by saying they're bored, saying they're bored until the parent allows them to play more video games than is good for them. And a lot of people are surprised to find, because my husband is a software engineer, that we limited video game use in our home. And a lot of people were would tell me, you can't do that in this day and age because they then they won't know how to do it. But one of our sons is a software engineer as well, so it turned out that it's not a problem. And when people ask me how much is too much, I say two things. Number one, that you should do an audit of how much screen time kids are spending in social media in texting in video games and then consider at what expenses is coming what other things should we be doing that aren't being done because of all that time and then 
dial it back. You can't, you'll create too much resentment and contention. If you try to cut it back all at one time, like cold Turkey, cut it back like 10 minutes a day over time until you get to the point where it's well in balance. And I know I'm talking a lot about video games and a session with some boredom, but you cannot divorce those things. Now you, you just can't divorce them because these video games are designed by really smart people whose whole goal is to hijack your attention so that all you want to do is play them and you resent anything that keeps you from them. So we've been talking a lot about boredom and I know that sometimes in the classroom and even in life, there's so many things that we just have to do. We just have to do things sometimes. So maybe the kid isn't interested in the topic, just I'm not interested in doing the dishes all the time. What advice would you give to teachers in that kind of situation for a kid that says that they're bored? I have written an entire article on this on my website. I posted it really recently. So if someone goes to the website, it may be the latest article on the website. If not, it's one of the top two. And it's called Why Gifted Kids Need School. And this article came out from an interview that I did with a sixth grader. And in the course of the interview, she said, there's no value in school for me, like social studies. And she says, I don't care. I don't want to know. If I want to know this, I'll read a book about it, right? There's nothing I can learn here that I couldn't learn by myself. And I, my response to her was so lengthy that I pulled it out of the interview article and made it its own article. And the first words I said to her, and her mom was in the interview, and the first words I said, in front of her mom were her idea of, I don't need to know anything about social studies is prideful and ignorant. And so I wrote this whole article, I wrote this whole article about why we need to learn stuff that doesn't interest us. And one of the main reasons is that you can't know now what's going to interest you in the future. And if you cash in on your, if you don't cash in on your opportunity to learn about it now, you may miss a thing that would help you find joy later. You So the number one reason that you're going to study things that don't seem interesting to you now is as a favor to your future self who may find that topic interesting. The second reason is that when you learn about something and then later you learn about something and your mind connects it to what you learned before, a couple of things happen. You get a shot of dopamine that you recognize that. We've all felt that, right? Where you somebody says something and you're like, Ooh, I know something about that, right? That's dopamine like that and other neurotransmitters as well. Oh, okay. I've heard about that. And you're instantly more attenuated. So the more you pay attention in class, the easier it is to pay attention because you're making more neural pathways and connections between things because more things. So the more, the more fun it is to learn. And that's just neurochemistry. And you're not going to fight against that. Like you can't beat that. It is what it is. So it it closes down by saying, I'm not interested in this. So I'm not going to study it. Or I'm going to make everybody pay for making me study it is closing a door to possible playtime for your mind enjoyment. You shut your dopamine party down. Um, the Another reason is because the more, you know, the more interesting you are. And so Interesting people are interested. If you want to be someone who more people like, more people want to be friends with, or you don't care, but you do care about your only friend and you want to be a better friend to them, one of the ways that you could do that is by knowing more stuff. 
not just because you might be able to help them with something, but also because you're just more interesting and you're more excited about things. And we enjoy being around people who aren't Eeyore all the time. And if you walk around saying that just doesn't interest me, that just doesn't interest me. You're just an intellectual Eeyore and you're boring. You're not even cute like Eeyore. Um, the, the next reason is that some things just need to be done, even if we don't like them right then, and even if we can't see right now why they should be done. Some things need to be done, and the joy of it will come later. I don't necessarily enjoy vacuuming, but I enjoy having vacuumed. I enjoy the, the house that has been vacuumed. I I use in the article an example of a book I call Rush. I read this book called Rush that was about Benjamin Rush. I had never heard of him, even though I taught social studies. And he was the founder of the like what became the American Psychological Association. He was the first physician. He was part of the American Revolution. He signed the Declaration of Independence. And he was the first physician in the United States who actually took mental health seriously. That's huge. I had no mm -hmm. idea he existed. The book was a slog. Oh my gosh, it was over 400 pages. I felt every one of them. I have a master's degree in teaching English and I still struggled to make my way through that book. But I have seen him talked about in so many different things. I have heard it referenced. I have never been so glad I read a book. And so sometimes it's not, it's because um, you, I couldn't see it right then, but I'm going to see it later. Now, and then a last note of it is that you may be in school to learn things different from the content alone because being smart is only part of the equation. Yeah, you may not need to know about the Tigris and Euphrates rivers because you just watched a four hour long documentary on it. But maybe what you're supposed to learn is how to manage your materials. Maybe you're supposed to learn how to work in a group. Maybe you're supposed to learn. So the kid next to you may actually need to know about Tigris and Euphrates river, but rivers. But what you need is I need to know how to plan out how to do an assignment. I need to know executive function or I need to know self-regulation, right? So we assume that the only thing that kids are going to school to learn is content, but that is maybe 30% generously of what they're learning in school. I just had this conversation with my youngest son the other day when I was talking with him about teaching. I taught him, I've been the teacher of record of all of my children, but I did not teach any of them language arts. And I said to him, I wish you'd been in my 10th grade English class so that I could have taught you Antigone. Um, and because the lesson of Antigone is that um, you need to learn to stand for what's right, even when you stand alone. And the lesson of Gatsby in my 11th grade language arts class was make sure your dream is worthy of you. And so sometimes kids are there to learn what's the style of Fitzgerald's Gatsby and what are some of the literary elements that we see and what's the theme and what's the author style intent and purpose and all of that. But sometimes it's a life lesson. And if you shut yourself away from the content, if you shut your mind to the content, you shut your mind to the life lessons as well. Wow. That's I love the way that you explained that. And that made me think about how there's this podcast I love to listen to, Armchair Expert, and they have so many different guests on. Sometimes it's like celebrities, but sometimes it's like these expert scientists or these um, politicians or authors or whatever. And I always, you know, if I recognize a name, I'm like, oh yeah, I want to listen to them. I'm so interested in that topic. But there's been a few times where I've tapped on ones and listen. And it wasn't someone I knew. I had no clue. It honestly sounded a little boring. And I ended up listening to it and was obsessed. And I had to listen to the whole thing. And then I had to go tell someone about it. 
like there was one on like wasps and why we need wasps and how bees are the ones that everyone's so focused on, but really wasps could do a lot of good things for people too. And I was just so interested. One time they had the author of all the Goosebumps books. Oh um, yeah. R.L. Stein, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I had known about the books, but I had no clue about him. And that was not something I'd usually be interested. So this idea of like your future self might be interested in that. You just don't know yet. So just because it doesn't sound like something you'd be into, give it a try. I love that idea. I think that's so powerful. It's something that you might use later or also that you might be interested in later, but also something that someone you care about might be interested. And so that is something as well. Like we're, our mind is not just for us. In fact, one of the interesting things about our minds is the collective memory that we share. So when you have someone close to you, a friend, a spouse, a family member, then you share memories, right? How we've all had the experience of talking about something that happened two months ago, a year ago, 10 years ago. And we're saying like, oh, do you remember when such and such and such happened? And then the person we're talking to says, yeah. And do you remember how so-and-so did such? And you don't remember it but they do. You both are carrying the burden of the memory, right? When that person dies, you can feel like you've lost your mind, actually lost your mind. And the reason is that they were carrying part of the memory and all of that is gone. You, they've, you, you've outsourced your memory to this person, which is how humanity works. And then now they're gone. You no longer have it. And so a lot of times, like I've had friends whose spouses have died. And I almost always will take the time to remind them, like, remember, you outsourced a bunch of your memory to him. And now he's gone. You're going to feel like you've lost your mind. You haven't really lost your mind. It's just that your your brain is missing that part of its memory and knows it. And so when we study things that we don't necessarily find of interest at that time, we are better able to make life enjoyable for people close to us who love those things. And when they want to talk to us about it, we actually know something about it. And we're in the same way that we outsource memory, we outsource interest. And so we we can become less selfish. And part of selfishness, a, a big hallmark trait of people who are selfish and who are narcissistic is to believe that the only, only things that are interesting are the things we're interested in. And so a lot of times when we indulge children in the idea that their boredom is the pinnacle emotion and the thing that will get everyone to DEFCON 1 is that we are encouraging narcissism. We're encouraging self-centeredness that if it doesn't work for you, then everybody needs to stop and fix it. Instead of saying, how can we help you develop skills? Because there will be more times in your life where you feel this way. I felt that way, right? I'm not saying that we never feel bored. I'm not saying that's not a thing. I'm de- I I recently was on a 10-hour plane flight. I was in doing some research in Germany and flying home 10 hours on a plane. It's not that exciting. And it was daytime, so it wasn't even like sleeping. And mm-hmm. you but you can find things fascinating, right? You can make anything fascinating. There's actually a poem about that, right? Heaven in a grain of sand. And so there's nothing on this planet that's not interesting. The point is to learn how to be interested. There are people who spend their entire career studying things that other people find boring. In fact, there are researchers who study boredom.
how can our listeners get in contact with you? The easiest way to get in contact me with me is on the website, giftedguru.com. If you happen to be a teacher who works with vocabulary, language, arts instruction, or you're interested, you teach a topic, you teach a content area that has a lot of academic vocabulary, like science or actually socially, all the core content areas, and also music has this too, then you might also like the website vocabularyluau.com where I teach how to teach academic vocabulary. I You can email me at lisa at giftedguru.com. I'm on all the socials. So at Instagram, the gifted guru, on Facebook at gifted guru, on YouTube, the gifted guru, and then uh, Twitter gifted underscore guru. So I'm available in all of those ways. I would really suggest if people are interested in ideas of giftedness and like support for parents and teachers to subscribe to my email, because then you'll get notified when office hours are where you can ask questions and pop on. And you can see, I hate giving my opinion and I will happily give my opinion every month in office hours. Thank you so much. I'll make sure I add all of those in the show notes as well. So if you're listening, check out the show notes for all of those details. Um, Lisa, the last thing we like to ask all of our guests is the term that giftedness, the, the divide that the term giftedness can sometimes cause leading to misconceptions and even preventing students from being identified at times. Do you agree that the term gifted is problematic? If so, would you need, rename it? I don't think the term gifted is problematic because I think it's the idea of a rose by any other name, no matter what we call them. Let's say we chose another word. We decide to call them picture frame. Pretty soon the word picture frame would pick up a connotation. We're getting too obsessed with denotation and not and forgetting that there's connotation. And so whatever we called it, we would soon resent it. So it's I, I actually like the term gifted because I feel like it implies that they didn't do anything to get it. They didn't earn it. It was just given to them. So there's no pridefulness in it and there's no need to be resentful of it or scared of it either. It was a gift and it came with some gifts with purchase that aren't always that great. So I think that if we want to make it, uh, I don't know, maybe more palatable, we, I guess, could call it like intellectual giftedness or something like that. But no matter what we call it, it people are going to be hateful toward it because we resent people who it, it's that knocking tall poppy syndrome, right? We resent people for whom things come easy or at least perceive that they come easy. We resent people who have more than we do in any way. And we're a society that has decided that the hill we're going to die on is egalitarianism. And forgetting that what one of our founding fathers said, Thomas Jefferson said, there's nothing more unequal than the equal treatment of unequal people. And we've accepted that people with handicaps or disabilities, that we can treat them differently in order to help them in life. But somehow, if we perceive that the thing that makes them different is a bonus or a boon instead of a disability, if it's a hyperability instead of a disability, then we resent that we don't want to serve them and we get mad. We we judge beautiful people the same way. Like you're too pretty to have problems. You're too rich to have problems. You'll hear people say like rich people problems, like rich people aren't allowed to have problems. You get higher rates of suicide in wealthy schools than poor schools. So the idea that something could be washed away or minimized because we associated it with good instead of struggle is so small-minded 
And no matter what we called it, we'd end up back in the same place, having the same discussion about that word in 10 years. So I think we just need to set aside our anti-gifted bias that exists in this country and is so prevalent. You look at Time Magazine every time. Boy, I could talk about this for a long time. I can feel myself getting all riled up. I'm more riled up about any more than, than in this than anything we've talked about today. But you watch Time Magazine. They have an article about gifted kids. What do they have? The cover is all gray, like some kind of Kafka nightmare. They've got some little 18-month-old wearing glasses and a vest sitting on a stack of books. Like the bias, the bias against gifted, the stereotypes against gifted are all tied up in that word. So if anybody says that to me, like if somebody says, I think we should call it whatever, I instantly just, oh, okay, here we go. Because <laughs> it's basically just your own prejudice about mm -hmm. it. And as soon as somebody says, I just think it would be better if we called it X, to me, that just shows a lack of understanding of the depth of the anti-gifted bias and prejudice that exists in our country. And I will get off my soapbox now. So, uh, but <laughs> no, no, I think that's such a good point to bring up is that they're going to find a problem with any word, any term that you anybody comes up with. People agree on it for a while and then they're going to have a problem with it. It's not the word itself. It's the meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. It's a meaning behind it. And so words themselves are just a combination of letters. They have, I mean, read Jabberwocky. Those words have no meaning. It's, it, we can, we assign meaning to words and those meanings shift. So I do think that it could probably be helpful if we had some federal law that protected gifted students, because then we would have an agreed upon definition of what we mean by gifted. And I think part of the problem with the word gifted is that no two people mean the same thing when they say it. And I think it's our intellectual unease with a non-definition and a lack of a cohesive definition that makes this word so problematic. And that if we in the field could come to agreement on what it means, and that's becoming increasingly problematic in an area, in an era of so-called you know, local norms, then that's those kinds of things make it more difficult, not less. But the word itself is just think about what there are so many words that we say, even like think about words for genitalia, right? Like we use other words for them. It's not the word itself. We have words that rhyme with those words and they don't mean anything, right? Mm -hmm. But we assign meaning to words and then we don't like the word or we are careful with the word because of the meaning, not the other way around. People who object to the word gifted have, are not really objecting to the word itself. They're objecting to the meaning. They're objecting to the idea that there are people who think more effectively or differently than others in a way that they feel gives an unfair advantage and they don't like it. And when we try to get rid of the word, what we're really doing is trying to diminish the people. That's so true. I love listening to the, the responses to that question. Thank you so much. Um, I just really liked that. Just really is going to have me thinking the rest of the day because that's so true. We do that with so many different things in our lives is the meaning is what's bothering people. It's not the specific words that we're choosing. It's the meaning. It's the meaning. And that's why so many school districts have changed like high ability. And they have, mm -hmm. I, I, I should start creating a list of all the things that different places call gifted in an effort to make it not say gifted. And yet, what is it? Gifted, right? <laughs> I'm still good. No. One thing that we didn't talk about just quickly 
but that um, you had given me a hint that you might ask was about a website that I'm currently using or like. And I do have one I would like to recommend for both parents and teachers for a couple of different things. So this website, you may have heard of it. You probably have. It's called Fiverr and it's just F-I-V-E-R-R. So Fiverr is a website that started where you could get stuff done for you for $5. That's where the word came from. Now there are things that range there from $5 to hundreds of dollars, but you can have things done for you. And as a teacher, I've used it so many times because you can get someone to make those like whiteboard explainer videos. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you just see the hand and doing it. You can Mm -hmm. get people to record puppets talking. You can like make a puppet show for you. You can get people to make all kinds of different videos or record stuff in like really good James Earl Jones voices. And as a teacher, I've used Fiverr so many times for recording things like the school rules I'm going to use over and over again. So I'll pay $10, have somebody make a whiteboard explainer video of it. And then I play that in class and kids are so much more interested in it. And so the reason I'm suggesting this website is because it is a nice way to handle things that might otherwise be boring. And I usually will use it for things I'll use over and over again. But as a teacher, if something saves me an hour and costs $10, it's totally worth it to me if I can use it again and again and again. As a parent, you might have a child who's struggling to remember like how they need to brush their teeth and you could have somebody record a video for you that's funny or somebody else's voice telling them how to brush their teeth and guiding them through it step by step. There are so many things available on Fiverr. If you have a child who likes to write books and you want them to have it look professional, you can find someone who for 20 bucks will make you a very high quality book cover that can add some panache and style and and authenticity to the book. And there are so many things available on Fiverr. I could go on and on and on. I can't think of anybody who can't find something that someone could do for them for $5 on Fiverr that would be either cool or save them a lot of time or money, or just make their life more fun. So Fiverr is a site I use all the time. And uh, it's 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 super fun. And you can get a lot done there for very inexpensively that can really up your game. And, it, and especially depending on what your profession is. I've had, if any people have watched my courses, I've hired people on Fiverr to do like my intros and outros on there. I'm so cool. I have so many questions. Like, how do I get on there? How do I get to start making stuff and getting paid? That's so cool. You can cool. do it. Oh my gosh. I'm oh, so Lexi, glad you brought so it up. I'm so glad you brought it up because this was my favorite question of the interview. I was like, oh, we're not going to have time to ask this question. And then you answered it and I'm blown away. I'm taking a peek at their website and I am pumped. If I were a teacher and I was listening to this in the summer or headed into the summer, which is when we're recording it right now, I would definitely just create a fiber budget for myself this summer and think about what are the things that I hate explaining. Like I have to teach when I teach elementary school, I'm, I teach all content areas. I have to do lab safety every year, lab safety. I would 100 percent get a puppet show explaining lab safety so that my kids can watch a puppet show because kids will watch a puppet over you, even though you have a master's right? Like, it's so funny how that works. But I would think of what are the things I hate doing? Could you make a little, could you have someone make for you a tiny little clip that you could play on your screen that's right before you're about to transition? A lot of our kids with ADHD or autism struggle with transitions. Could you have somebody make a little, a short little video clip of like 10 seconds that you play during transitions that has music to help your kids with that? Think about the things that are a struggle for you or your students. And is there someone on Fiverr who could do it for you for five or 10 bucks that would save you all through the school year? Great. This makes me think of Cameo. 
it's the cameo website where you pay someone to send yes. a message to somebody like you else, play like famous people to sing happy birthday like you pay donny osmond to sing happy birthday to your yeah. friend oh 100 yeah. because they have celebrity impersonators on there too so yeah for sure that's so cool. Yeah, Thank you for we'll sharing go down that. that rabbit hole. There's nobody who can't find something that they want. But if you are someone who wants something done more physical, like around your house, there is a similar website called TaskRabbit, where you can find people who can come over and put together IKEA furniture and stuff like that. So pick up your laundry for you, stuff like that. Sounds lovely. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so cool. Thank you so much, Lisa. This has been a treat. I'm so excited we got to talk to you and just thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a true pleasure. I love North Carolina. I loved um, keynoting that conference and getting to meet everyone there. And this has been a true pleasure and an honor. And I look forward to anybody who is listening to this. If they have more questions, feel free to reach out. Mm -hmm.